Lombardi. Hour number two underway. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Thanks a lot for hanging out. I do appreciate it. Uh, now, because, you know, I try not to be all doom and gloom, I try to be somewhat optimistic. And what better way to be optimistic than to uh, to revel in uh, problems in China? No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. China is facing a real estate bust. Its demographics uh, are in decline, as well as a bunch of different data points we'll get into later in the hour. But I want to welcome to the program Scott Lincecum. He is the Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute. He's an adjunct professor at Duke University Law and a lover and creator of charts. Scott, how are you? Doing fine. How are you? I am doing all right. So uh, first off, uh, you had a piece uh, a couple weeks back at Cato.org, the title Checking in on China and America's Undeserved Crisis of Confidence. And you make this assertion that uh, there is this uh, sort of uh, rising sentiment in America that, hey, you know what? Maybe the Chinese got it right and we should be doing more stuff like them, and we should be not doing the things that we do, right? So right. first, uh, uh, defend that that premise, uh, that that is sort of this rising sentiment that you've noticed, noticed. Right. Well, if you look just at over the summer, um, you saw a uh, $85 billion uh, subsidy package for American semiconductor manufacturing. You saw... Um, uh, coupled with hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, authorized uh, but not appropriated funds for um, R&D and other types of applied commercial research. Um, Then we had the hilariously named Inflation Reduction Act, which had hundreds of billions of dollars more in subsidies for all sorts of renewable energy projects and the rest. Um, really providing a a, a top-down economic planning model that is very much based on the idea that we are falling behind, particularly with respect uh, to China, and that to catch up um, after decades of free market fundamentalism, uh, we have to embrace China-style industrial policy. We need to pick winners and losers in the market. We need to heavily subsidize them, or maybe we need to protect them with tariffs and buy American restrictions and the rest. Um, and that will um, re- return America to its glory days and uh, hopefully uh, stop the um, the the incessant or unceasing rise of China uh, as a global power. So it, it seems like that is a, a, a philosophy or, I guess, a general disposition that a, a lot of, uh, you know, command controller types, uh, yeah. uh, that, that they've always had. They looked at China and thought, yeah, that's what we would very much like to right. do. But there were always, I thought, uh, I mean, I'm a free market guy, uh, and I, I always thought that that was kind of where most, uh, maybe right of center, but I would also think probably most Americans would tend to fall. Is there some sort of a shift that has occurred that you've noticed? Well, there, there's a, yeah, there's a shift on, on several fronts. I mean, really, it's been a bit of a perfect storm, uh, if you will. Um, the first is you had uh, the rise of the Trump presidency, which was very much um, more amenable to uh, industrial policy, protectionism, and, of course, was, was uh, aggressively uh, targeting China and Chinese economic behavior. Um, you combine that with some pretty legitimately bad behavior by the Chinese government. 
whether it's on trade and industrial policy stuff or uh, human rights and geopolitical issues and the rest. Um, and then you top it all off with uh, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, not, not merely that the pandemic you know, originated in China, but also um, you had all sorts of supply chain problems and the rest that inevitably occur when you have a global pandemic that's shutting down and starting up economies right and left um, and doing all sorts of things to uh, shipping and, and factories here and abroad. So you combine all that together, and there's really been a renewed focus over the last couple of years in Washington and a bipartisan focus um, that we need to do something about, about China. And then when you couple it with, again, that prevalent conventional wisdom that China is this unstoppable global hegemon that fueled by protectionism and industrial policy requires some sort of forceful uh, U.S. government uh, response. You put that all together, and then you end up with these subsidy bills um, and a a pretty widespread view in uh, at least in Congress um, that you know we need to be more uh, interventionist and less uh, uh, free market. Okay, so then talk us uh, talk us off the ledge. Then is sure. China really this this threat? I mean, I understand there's I mean, even I think you quoted the the was it the Lowy or Lowy Institute report mm-hmm. that. Uh, says China's experiencing a major growth slowdown in the coming years and never is expected to never reach U.S. levels of development. It would still become the world's largest economy, though. Yeah. But is that a distinction yeah. without a difference? No, it's a, it's a huge dis- it's a huge distinction uh, because you have to think of China um, as in terms of its population. Um, so global GDP, for example, is going to be based on uh, the number of people a country has. Um, and China has, you know, what, about three times as many people as the United States. Um, so it is far more important when you're looking at, uh, at a country's wealth and economic development to look at that on a per capita basis. Um, because if, if China has a whole lot of very poor people, um, it's going to have a, a big GDP, but those people aren't going to be buying and consuming and affecting the global economy. Or you might not have, you know, innovative companies and the rest. You just might have a lot of a lot of very poor people. Um, so it's really critical to look at, at things um, from a per capita basis um, first. Uh, but also we need to look at some of the underlying trends in, in China. Um, you know, certainly China's experienced pretty rapid economic growth over the last 30 years. Uh, but contrary to the conventional wisdom, that's not really because of some sort of um, state capitalist revolution. It's really because China, uh, back in the early 1980s and through the 90s, embraced a lot of market-oriented reforms, uh, private property rights, trade liberalization, um, all sorts of things that allowed China to catch, uh, participate in catch-up growth. Mm. Because it started at such a low base after uh, decades of crushing communism and state control. Um, but in recent years, China strayed away from that, has embraced industrial policy more, and has seen some pretty bad results. Um, you see not only slowing productivity growth well below what we call the frontier, which is where the United States and other developed economies like, say, Germany and South Korea are, um, not only is 
productivity growth slowing, but demographics are a big headwind, in other other words, population. So China derives a lot of its global economic power from its people. Well, guess what? Now, uh, most people think that China's economy or population is has either just peaked or is already shrinking because they're not having a lot of babies. They don't have a lot of uh, domestic immigration or in immigration coming into the country. you put that all together, um, and that provides a massive headwind for future growth. Um, but, and not only that, you have a system that uh, has, has just is going to get what we say is going to get old before it gets rich. Um, and that will prevent a lot of the type of innovation and development that China needs. It will put strains on the social safety net over there as you have a lot of uh, just a handful of younger workers supporting a whole lot of older workers. Um, it will put uh, a more stress on state tax base uh, and revenues, um, and which means you know they can't fund as much industrial policy. They can't fund all those social programs. They uh, are going to have bigger issues with debt. Uh, China, there are big problems, not just with government debt, but with corporate debt over there. That's another big headwind. And you put it all together, and it's doesn't argue, I think, for a immediate collapse, but it does. These long-term trends really argue against that narrative that there's some sort of unstoppable Chinese hegemon out there, um, and that doesn't even get into the more recent events that I think really cripple uh, that narrative we talked about. All right, we'll we'll touch on some of the recent events uh, that you mentioned there in a moment. Scott Lincecum, the director of general economics and trade at the Cato Institute, adjunct professor at Duke University Law, as well. No, we're not playing James Taylor bumper music all day. That was just in the last hour to celebrate whipping inflation. That's all. All right, my guest is Scott Lincecum. He's the Director of General Economics and Trade at the Cato Institute and adjunct professor at Duke University Law. He's got a piece at Cato.org titled Checking In on China and America's Undeserved Crisis of Confidence. Um, And in the piece, Scott, you say that... uh, It is increasingly clear that the pervasive pessimism in America regarding the supposed weakness of American capitalism in the face of the China threat is misguided. And you mentioned before the break there recent events uh, that make this even clearer. So what are the recent events? Right. So uh, the the place to obviously start is uh, COVID zero policy in China um, that has uh, really uh, crippled the economy. Um, over the last year or so. Um, you know, uh, contrary to the United States that, uh, you know, I think could arguably justified for some of the very early COVID lockdowns and other things that went on, because we really had no idea what was going on, um, uh, China has continued those policies into 2022. Uh, in fact, is now under uh, several major lockdowns in, in several large cities right now, um, because uh, the Chinese government has refused to budge from a policy of having zero infections. So with widespread testing and these policies in place, you're getting large chunks of the Chinese economy uh, literally shutting down um, on a moment's notice. Uh, Now, that has been going on for months now. And it's not only, uh, of course, uh, 
crimping uh, economic growth and, and, and development and the rest. But it's also causing a lot of foreign companies to rethink whether uh, China is a stable place to do business. And you're seeing a lot of uh, folks can thinking, well, you know what, maybe we actually need to hedge our bets. We need to remove some of our investments from China. Um, now, you combine those problems with uh, President Xi Jinping's um, top-down crackdown on uh, entrepreneurship and private investment uh, in uh, tech, in uh, education, um, and you have even more problems, right? Because uh, now you're seeing some of the most vibrant sectors of the Chinese economy, those that had some of the least amount of top-down economic planning, are now coming under President Xi's control. Um, and you're seeing a lot of ent- entrepreneurs fleeing China because of that. And again, you're seeing foreign investors rethink whether China's really going to be a good place to do business in the future. Um, then you combine all of that with a pretty serious property crisis over there. Um, you know, for years and years and years, uh, China pessimists have looked at Chinese property sector and said, wow, they are really top-heavy on property investment. A lot of Chinese citizens were using second homes as an investment. Vehicle. Um, China was building uh, major cities without any residents, just yeah. assuming that growth and migration was going to continue. Now that house of cards appears to be tumbling. Um, we've seen several major bond defaults over there, um, and uh, most people think that the housing sector is going to be a further drag on the Chinese economy going forward. Now, again, I don't really know if I share the pessimist view that China's going to collapse or anything like that, but this really is showing that China's um, going to be that that miraculous growth of say the 1990s and the 2000s even uh, is nowhere to be found now in China. And in fact, um, we're seeing problems with mass youth unemployment uh, right now and uh, other major headwinds um, that are more short term. But when you combine it with those long term ones that we talked about in the previous segment, uh, this is a country that that has a, a lot of problems. Uh, meanwhile, of course, you know you come back to the United. States, and certainly we have our own problems, inflation and other things, but we just kind of keep chugging along. Um, you know, despite those problems, we keep making advances, keep leading the world in foreign investment and other things. Um, and so, you know, it, there is really, I think, a, a strong case to be made that instead of trying to copy China, uh, we should be doing what made America great in the first place. And that's really, um, you know, focusing on American-style capitalism and openness to foreign trade and investment and immigration um, and having a clear, stable regulatory and legal regime. You know, all of those things that us free marketers love um, and then, quite frankly, have, have made the United States a, a continued economic powerhouse. So we mentioned the the decline in Chinese birth rates. They keep falling even after they got rid of the one child policy. They went yeah. to a two child policy, and now I think they're they're like, okay, you can have like three kids or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and but that's that has not reversed the trend. Um, but uh, also, in, in, in when you talked about like the ghost cities and stuff that they have yeah. built, which are really creepy to see. Um, but uh, are you overlooking the ability that China has? To just enslave a whole bunch more people. Are you overlooking that in the economic uh, analysis? Not really, because, you know, 
slaves aren't productive, uh, and they're certainly not innovative. Uh, and the idea that uh, China can just flip some switch and then, you know, send a bunch of soldiers to people's offices and force, force them to, um, you know, invent the next TikTok or whatever is, I think, pretty, pretty misguided. Um, certainly, I think there are problems and there are serious challenges that the United States needs to deal with. Um, there are concerns about geopolitics, of course. Um, there are concerns about Taiwan. There are concerns about what a weakened uh, President Xi might do. Uh, but I think, again, the, the main point is not uh, that there aren't problems, that there aren't issues. It's that we need to stop thinking of China as an urgent problem that demands we abandon uh, American capitalism. Right. Uh, instead, we need to focus on the discrete problems that really exist and narrowly target those. And like I said, lean into what 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 we do best. Scott Lincecum, the director of general economics and trade at the Cato Institute, adjunct professor at Duke University Law. You can also follow him on Twitter. He, he has all sorts of charts there uh, and some uh, not ideal food takes as well. Scott Lincecum <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, thanks a lot, Scott. Good to talk with you. Appreciate your time, sir. My pleasure, Pete. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Scott Lincecum, thanks again uh, to Scott for joining me on the program. And uh, you can read his work at Cato.org. Um... He said uh, he talks about uh, Bloomberg Economics uh, prediction that China's economy is going only going to grow two percent this year. That's going to be outpaced by the U.S. economy's growth at two point eight percent for the first time since nineteen seventy six. We'll see if that happens. Uh, you know, I, I don't trust predictions because they are predictive; they're speculative, right? But uh, he says, but that's a big problem for Chinese uh, for the Chinese economy because the country is still relatively poor. Right. And a slowing economy, slower economic growth, while a problem for any country, he says it's especially one for China, where GDP is seen as a way to maintain social order and project regime legitimacy at home and abroad. Scott was also talking about uh, this covid zero philosophy that the president of China, who kind of looks like Winnie the Pooh. um, Yeah, I know that'll get me. Sent to a gulag when China takes over. But whatever. Um, it was worth it. But this zero COVID approach has caused a lot of problems because it affects their uh, it affects their industries, uh, you know, above and beyond their industrial policies. But he says it has also created, uh, what does he say, government officials charged with implementing policy at the ground level are not quite sure who to listen to on this stuff because the president keeps pushing for zero COVID. But then you've got these other people, uh, and he names one of them Premier Lee Kengyang, I think. Um, is that how you pronounce that? I don't know. Um, but this is the guy who's in charge of ensuring the Chinese economy performs. And, you know, all right, maybe they just send him off to a gulag or something if it doesn't perform. But he's been arguing, I guess, against this sort of thing. So you've got confusion on the ground. That dilemma is leading to paralysis within a nation normally hailed for speedy implementation of diktats from above. Right. This is one of the benefits. And 
honestly, the fatal conceit of central planners, which is, you know, we'll just direct you to do this thing. Well, what if you have contradictory orders coming from up the food chain? And it's one thing if it happens in your business. It's another thing when it happens in the entire country and affects all industries. In the name of pandemic control, the Chinese government is meddling with the economy in ways the country hasn't seen for decades, which has wrecked havoc on business. Um, and so a lot of the gains that made China grow and, you know, with their growth comes the rising threat. But part of the problem is that now the president of China has uh, gotten more interventionist. And that's it's, it has scared a lot of investment away. As uh, Scott Linscombe mentioned, foreign capital has been fleeing China now for months. Major companies have started to look uh, to other countries uh, for manufacturing options. Foreign teachers, he says, are abandoning ship. Um, that harms their international schools. The service sector is being underinvested in, and youth unemployment, he mentioned, has skyrocketed. Um, his push to steer China away from capitalism and the West has thrown the Chinese economy into uncertainty and exposed faint cracks in his hold on power. Now, Lincecum goes on to say he doesn't think that this means that Xi Jinping is at much risk of being deposed or anything or that the Chinese economy is going to collapse. But it's beyond clear at this point that the supposedly unstoppable Chinese juggernaut, the one that supposedly justified abandoning American free market capitalism or whatever, has serious flaws. And those flaws have been caused in no small part by China's autocratic state capitalist economic model. We should not be emulating it. It also is increasingly clear that the pervasive pessimism here in America regarding the supposed weakness of American capitalism in the face of the China threat is misguided. He uh, then goes on to quote, um, well, first he says, unplanned decentralized democracy here may have its messes. Okay, yes, it surely has its messes. But the system's drawbacks are heavily outweighed by its advantages. It just usually takes a little while for the scales to tip. And then he quotes Kevin Williamson from National Review, who says, Americans wallow in doom and gloom, even though our fiscal policies belong to a nation of insane pie-in-the-sky optimists. We almost always overestimate the strength of the autocratic regimes and underestimate the strength of liberal democratic ones. We did it throughout the Cold War. We've done it for decades with respect to China. And even among the liberal democracies, we Americans always overestimate the strength of our rivals and competitors and underestimate ourselves. What works is the boring old stuff that we have here. Freedom, democracy, property rights, rule of law, modest regulation, light taxation, free trade, a culture of entrepreneurship, and hard work. That's the stuff that works. Lincecum then quotes uh, Alex Tabarak or Tabarak from George Mason University, who says, Every generation launches a new competitor to America, and the people who don't like capitalism and America's individualist free market economy trumpet that now the American way is being left in the dust. In the progressive era, it was the Germans. Then it was the Russians in USSR, right? Then it was the Japanese. They're buying Rockefeller Center. Remember that? Then it's the Chinese. He says, my message to Americans is to double down on America. Double down on immigration, entrepreneurship, innovation, 
building for tomorrow, free markets, free speech, individualism. America will take all new competitors as it has taken all comers in the past. The world should be more like us, not the other way around. All right, a couple of uh, related stories on China. China. John Sexton from Hot Air talking about uh, a clip that's circulating in the Chinese interweb telling people to buy more property. Real estate, the real estate crisis that has been brewing in China for months continues. It may sound odd to encourage people to buy multiple homes, but it's not that unusual in China. Why? Limits on foreign investment mean that a lot of people have no better place to put their money than in real estate. The problem with owning two, three, or four properties is that ultimately there are more homes than people who need them, which I don't understand why, if they've got all these extra homes there uh, in China, can we not just, yeah, can we not just import them here? We have a, we have a housing crisis. Give us the homes, China. You give everything else to us. Why can't we have all of your extra homes? At present, there are about 50 million empty apartments in China. We mentioned this earlier. Have you, have you ever seen the videos of these ghost cities or the malls that China built? Massive, massive buildings, high rises, empty, just all empty. Or a mall that's got like two stores in it. They, yeah, Eastland. Oh, no, I'm kidding. But... Uh, yeah, though, no, they they have they built all of these buildings either because, you know, jobs programs, they need to they just need to keep pushing out the work or else people don't have jobs. You know, or they thought, oh, we'll have enough people. Our population needs all of this extra uh, these apartments and we'll fill them. And so we're getting ahead of it. I'm not so sure about that. When the economy is facing a downturn, as it now is in China, thanks in part to their zero COVID policy, people decide to put some of those empty properties on the market. But because there's such a huge supply, it creates a glut that drives down values. That real estate market, which propelled China's rapid growth ever since the 2008 financial crisis, is now in the midst of a housing bust, which has recorded its 11th straight month of price declines. Last year, China's largest real estate company defaulted on its debt, and that default means that a lot of people who had already invested in a new apartment were no longer certain they would ever be built because you would, in China, you buy them ahead of time. They're, the company is called Evergrande, Evergrande or Evergrande. I don't know. Uh, it's ever it's all one word, Evergrande with an E at the end, Evergrande. And the defaults are testing this understanding that's been long held among foreign investors that Beijing would ultimately step in to save its biggest companies. But what if it doesn't? Authorities have shown greater willingness to let companies fall in order to rein in its unsustainable debt problem. The response from some Chinese buyers was to just stop paying the mortgages because they don't think they're going to get finished. Home buyers threatened to stop buy, to stop their mortgage payments over construction delays and sinking real estate prices. Eighty cities, more than two hundred pro, uh, projects affected. Chinese online platforms are deleting crowdsourced documents and social media posts, tabulating the number of mortgage boycotts and project delays nationwide. Because they're they're it's a weird model. They prepay so they prepay. And once that prepay funding stops, the developers can't build, which then prompts more people to stop paying, which means the developers can't build, 
and that creates this cycle that leads inexorably towards a bust. Speaking of busts, Chinese demographics. I think they're I think they're close to a demographic death spiral. Last week, Niall Ferguson says he had the uh, pleasure of attending. Uh, this is uh, at his Substack uh, 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 website, uh, his his newsletter rather. Uh, he said, "I had the pleasure of attending the annual gathering at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, the little brother of the longer running Aspen Strategy Group." And uh, the main event turned out to be a series of disquieting papers on U.S. demographic trends and their implications. These turn out to be a big deal and at a first sight, a rather bad one. The rate of population growth in America has been falling for nearly two decades. The resident population grew by just 0.1% in 2021. That's the slowest peacetime rate the country has ever experienced. And it's far below the roughly 1% annual growth rate recorded between the 70s and the onset of the financial crisis in 2008. And they cited three forces for this. Number one, rising mortality, which is attributable, they say, to COVID, declining fertility, and falling net international migration. And then he goes through and he he breaks down all of these uh, data points for America. But by contrast, he says... um, The U.N. offers no scenario in which China's population does not decline because we get immigration. China does not. Right? People are not banging down the doors to get into China. Best case, they say, and again, this is prediction, so who knows, but best case scenario, it falls by a fifth. A fifth. The, the base case, which is sort of like the average, it's sort of a middle-of-the-road case, would be it falls 46%. Worst case, it falls two-thirds. Two-thirds. That is a major revision by, uh, by the United Nations. The main reason for the change can be found in the most recent birth data that's been published by China, which point to a swan dive in births since 2016. And, of course... This is assuming that China is telling the truth about that data. And what do we always say about commies? They lie. So it might even be worse than what they're saying. I mean, I'm not trying to revel in their demise, but... All right, news is next. 